Uh, there's many phobias out there, and I don't know about you, but I don't think I suffer from any. Although recently I overcame a slight case of algaeophobia, uh, so the fear of pain. I went and gave blood for the first time in six or seven years, so yay me. Uh, which phobia, though, tops your list of the ones you don't want to have? How about hedonophobia, which is the fear of pleasure? Scared stiff that you're about to have a good time. That sounds terrible to me. Uh, is there anything out there that makes you uneasy, uncomfortable? Dietrich Calder once wrote, There are three things that trouble me. I will have to die. I don't know when. And I don't know where I'll go. It's a fear of death and sin and judgment and God. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe not to that extreme, but do you ever feel uneasy about your sin? Do you occasionally hear that accusing voice bringing up old sins? Uh, you remember old failures and shortcomings, perhaps major stumbles and gross sins. Are we trying to ignore them, but every now and again the memories get dragged up? Or you might be a sensitive person and you don't have to have major skeletons in your closet to feel unworthy for whatever reason. Even so-called little sins cause you to doubt and to question in anxiety. Our sins can trouble us, can't they? Now, over the last couple of weeks in Numbers, uh, we've been reminded of the necessity of obeying God. So what does he do with my sins now? What effect does my sin have on things? And how am I meant to feel about that? We're up to Numbers chapters 15 through to 19 this morning. Uh, I'm hoping you've read ahead because it's a big chunk of scripture. And in these chapters we learn of our strong and insistent Lord God. He will be the God of his people and that brings us comfort and security. Now, in order to understand chapters 15 to 19, we've got to remember the debacle of chapter 14. Uh, last week, remember, Old Testament Israel was brought to the very edge of the land, but they rejected it in rebellion and unbelief. And so God condemned them in death and judgment. It's an awful episode. And yet, despite this, chapter 15 begins with some explosive words. I'm going to read the first couple of verses of chapter 15. Chapter 15. Chapter 15 and verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, After you enter the land, I am giving you as a home. Do you see that? After you enter the land. Now the next few verses are about sacrifices that the people have to make. But the point here, and in verse 18, is that these sacrifices will be made after they enter the land. Israel will yet see the promised land. God will bring them in. Despite their horrific rebellion of chapter 14, God hasn't changed his heart for Israel. God will still relate to them in faithfulness and generosity. And this is a point further highlighted as we go through chapters 16 to 19. Uh, these chapters are dominated by the tabernacle and the priests. Uh, back in the books of Exodus and Leviticus earlier on, uh, God had set up the tabernacle and the priests as the way that Israel was to interact with God. Uh, the tabernacle, remember, that's his house. It's just this whopping great big tent that God lives in. 
but only the priests could enter into the holy places of the tabernacle. The priests mediated between the people and God. That's what a priest does. They speak and act on your behalf before God. And because of God's holiness and the people's sin, priests were necessary. And what we get in chapters 16 to 19 is the wonderful news that this will still be the way that God interacts with Israel. Despite their despicable rebellion in chapter 14, God is not going to withdraw from them. I don't know if you've ever had uh, someone seriously wrong you, uh, maybe lied to you in order to get you to do something, uh, stolen from you, but tried to hide it and deny it, uh, treated you or your children or loved ones in horrible ways. If you've ever been wronged, you'll know the overwhelming desire to withdraw to put up your defences, to keep them at a distance and only relate to these people on a have-to basis. Well, in chapter 14, Israel spat in God's face and told him where to go in no uncertain terms. And last week we saw God didn't leave this sin unchecked, but what we have in chapters 16 and 19 is not a wall of defence going up. God's not withdrawing from them. Instead, in incredible grace, God insists that his people still relate to him just as they did before in the face of their wickedness of chapter 14 and as we'll see their continual grumbling and testing chapter 16 and despite all this God insists that they relate to him as they did before through the priests through the priests he's not withdrawing from them Israel was made up you'll remember hopefully of 12 tribes and remember one of the tribes came one of the tribes Levite Uh, The Levites were where the priests came from, but not all the Levites were priests, only certain ones. And in chapter 16, some Levites who weren't priests and some other Israelites, they come and complain about the special treatment of the priests. They think everyone should be allowed to to do what priests do. They think everyone's holy, and so everyone can approach God, and everyone's equal, and everyone can go into the holy of holies, the the holy places. Have a look, chapter 16 and verse 3. Chapter 16, verse 3. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, You've gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? You see, they think everyone should be allowed to be priests. The whole community is holy. No one's above anyone else, Moses. But Moses is outraged. Skip down to verse 8. Verse 8. Moses also said to Korah, Now listen, you Levites. Isn't it enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near himself to do the work of the Lord's tabernacle and to stand before the community and minister to them? He has brought you and all your fellow Levites near himself. But now you're trying to get the priesthood too? And so to sort this rot out, Moses has Korah and his friends and Aaron, the priest, to have a competition. He's going to get both of them to do something only a priest is allowed to do, offer incense before the Lord. And God would choose from between them who was right. Now this is a great test. Because if Korah and his buddies are right, well then they should be fine to offer priestly incense before the Lord. But if they're wrong, well then the judgment of God will fall on them. Moses predicted 
that if Korah was wrong, well then him and all his uh, buddies would die in unusual circumstances. Uh, let's see what happens. Verse 31, chapter 16, verse 31. As soon as Moses finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all Korah's men and all their possessions. They went down alive into the grave with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, The earth's going to swallow us too. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. This is the action spot in the movie, with all the cars exploding and the buildings falling down, and it's very dramatic and it's devastating, and everyone gets scared, as you can imagine. But the point is clear, isn't it? The priesthood that God set up previously, the priesthood of Aaron and his sons, It still stands. God's not withdrawing from them. Nothing's changed. Israel was to come to God just as they did before through God's appointed priests, which is a darn good thing for Israel because the very next day they needed the priest to intercede for them yet again. Uh, That's what a priest does, remember? He talks and uh, acts on your behalf before God, and the next day that's what Old Testament Israel needed because they're up to their old grumbling tricks. They complained to Moses that he was killing all the people because of all this going on about the Levites and the priests. And so God in wrath sent a plague among the Israelites and many were dying. And so Moses sent Aaron, the true priest, to atone for sin. Have a look and it's verse 46, chapter 16, verse 46. Then Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put incense in it along with fire from the altar, and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord. The plague has started. So Aaron did as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. He stood between the living and the dead, and the plague stopped. Now, did you notice that Aaron atoned for sin by offering incense before the Lord? When Korah and his friends did that, they got destroyed. But when Aaron, the God-appointed priest, offers incense, it makes atonement for the people and the plague stops. Lives are saved. Sin is atoned for when the right priest acts on your behalf before God. And again, the point's the same, isn't it? It's very clear. God's choice of Aaron and his sons as the priest, it still stands. God hasn't withdrawn from the people. He hasn't changed the way that he's going to interact with them. It's still through Aaron and the priests. And God relating to his people through a priest, it's still true today, isn't it? See, Roman Catholicism is right at this point, aren't they? We do need a priest to come before God, to interact with him in safety. We're sinners like Old Testament Israel. God is still holy. We need someone to mediate between us and God and to deal with our sin. We need a priest. But this priest needs to be the right one, appointed by God. We don't need some upstart like Korah. We need the one God's chosen. And this is where Roman Catholicism has it all wrong because God's already provided this priest in his son, the Lord Jesus. Christ's death completely washes away our sin. We don't need any other priests. Jesus perfectly mediates between us and God. And so we go to Christ to confess our sins. We go to the Lord Jesus to ask for forgiveness. 
We can't come to God through a Catholic priest, a Presbyterian minister. It doesn't matter. In 1 Timothy, we're told that there's only one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He's the God-appointed priest. And that's the point of Numbers 16. You need the right priest to interact with God. And it's a point symbolised one more time in chapter 17. And the point had to be made again because as hard as it is for us to believe, Old Testament Israel still didn't get it. They just didn't get that they needed the special God-appointed priest to interact with him. And so with one more demonstration, God finally gets through to them. God gets the leader of each of the 12 tribes of Israel to get a staff, write their name on it, and then place them in the tent of meeting. And the staff that sprouts to life will be the staff of the person that God has chosen. So there's going to be 12 staffs in the tabernacle overnight. One of them's going to come out alive. It'll sprout with life. Now, it's no surprise that it's Aaron's staff that sprouts to life. And it just doesn't sprout to life. We're told that it, it uh, sprouted, it budded, it blossomed, and it produced almonds, of all things. That's one heck of a greenhouse, if you ask me. And the people, when they find out that it was Aaron's staff, the people finally get the symbolism. Only Aaron and his sons can go into the tabernacle and live. If anybody else tries, they'll die. Have a look, chapter 17, chapter 17 and verse 10. After discovering that only Aaron's staff came out of the tabernacle alive, we read in verse 10, chapter 17, The Lord said to Moses, Put back Aaron's staff in front of the testimony to be kept as a sign to the rebellious. This will put an end to their grumbling against me so that they will not die. Moses did just as the Lord commanded him. The Israelites said to Moses, We'll die. We're lost. We are all lost. Anyone who even comes near the tabernacle of the Lord will die. Are we all going to die? And it's this question that's answered in the very next verses of chapter 18. No, they're not going to die. They won't die as long as they don't get too near the tabernacle. And so one of the responsibilities of the priests was to guard the tabernacle. That's the bit of the Bible that Ern read for us earlier. They were to make sure, the priests were to make sure, that no one who wasn't meant to be near the tabernacle, that no one got even close. The sanctuary of the tabernacle, the holy place, only priests could get in, and if anyone else tried, they were to kill them. We'll pick it up in our verse 7 of chapter 18. God's speaking to Aaron, and he says in verse 7, chapter 18, But only you and your sons may serve as priests in connection with everything at the altar and inside the curtain. I'm giving you the service of the priesthood as a gift. Anyone else who comes near the sanctuary must be put to death. The priests were literally to guard the sanctuary, to keep the rest of God's people out, to kill anyone who came near that wasn't a priest. Now, we hear this and we think it's a bit extreme. But for Israel, it was nothing new. God had already set up the priests as mediators between him and the people. This is Exodus and Leviticus stuff. This is same old, same old. But that's great news. 
because it shows that God didn't withdraw from his people. Despite their sin and rebellion, their continual grumbling and testing, the horrors of chapter 14, God still says, no, 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 you can come to me through the priests. So just come to me on my terms, my old terms, through the priests. It's a bit like telling your kids uh, not to stick a fork in a PowerPoint. Uh, It's fine while they obey it. In fact, life works quite well that way, I think. But as soon as they disobey, well, things can go horribly wrong. Or trying to get onto uh, the SCG, the cricket ground, when there's a one-day international cricket game going on. Uh, there's only certain people that are allowed on the ground. Uh, you have to be one of the players or an umpire or an official. And if you just try and run on, uh, they'll just run you out. Or security guards pop out from all over the place. You know, problem in sector G or something like that. And all, and all of a sudden they're, they're descending on you and tackling you and dragging you out of the ground. There's a certain way to do certain things. And if you stick to the prescribed way, everything's fine. But if you step outside the rules, well, the more serious the offence, the more serious the consequences. God had set up the priest to guard the holy sanctuary of the tabernacle. It was come to God through the priest or die. Now, Christ Jesus himself has come as our great and final high priest. And the extraordinary thing, though, is he no longer... He doesn't guard the holy place from God's people. In the book of Hebrews, we learn he doesn't keep people out of God's presence. He welcomes them in. And not just into a tabernacle. By his death in our place, Christ welcomes us into the real deal. The true most holy place. The real heavenly presence of God himself. We're not kept from entering. We're not guarded to the point of death. No, in Christ, we're embraced into the very presence of God. Let's just try and step back a bit and see the big picture of what's going on here in Numbers. What we're seeing in these chapters, in the terrible judgments of chapter 16, the budding of Aaron's staff in chapter 17, the guarding role of the priests in chapter 18, what we're seeing in all this is that God is not withdrawing, that despite the sin of his people, he's not walking away from them. He's staying in the tabernacle and his priests, his people can come to him through his priests. He didn't withdraw. He didn't pull back. Exactly what he'd set up in Exodus and Leviticus, it still stands despite the sin of his people. He was still their God and they could still be his people. Now this truth that we're seeing about God is great preparation for us to understand Jesus. Israel's sin, it didn't see God withdraw from them. Neither does our sin see God withdraw from us because of Jesus. And with Jesus, we've got it much better than Israel ever did. Have a look at 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. I think you'll agree that as we've gone through the book of Numbers, God held Israel at an arm's length. Only priests were allowed to come into his holy places. Uh, there was a certain there was barriers up if, for you to be able to get into God. That God held Israel at an arm's length. Now he did hold them at a, did hold them. They were His people, but He held them at an arm's length. But for us in Christ, we've been ushered into the very heavenly presence of God, the true most holy place. And because of Christ, we're there to stay, even in the face of our sin, our continuing sin. God doesn't kick us out. He doesn't withdraw from us. 
He keeps us in in his very presence because of Jesus. Because if we do sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Have you ever wondered about some of your sins? Whether they've put you beyond the reach of God? You've got skeletons in your closet, things you hope will never see the light of day. You've got a temper that's got out of control, been violent. Have you flirted with sexual immorality, invited temptation and given in? Maybe for you it's a substance abuse problem. Or simply being discontent with what God's given you and given in to gambling. Lack confidence in God's provision. Try to fix things with some quick money only to find yourself ruining your life and the life of those around you. Maybe it's lies you've told in order to get yourself ahead, people you've squashed in order to make yourself some money. You might be someone that doesn't have big skeletons in your closet. But still you sometimes wonder whether God can accept you, whether or not God will still have you, because if you like, you've got a sensitive sinometer. Uh, Any old sin makes you feel out of God's reach. Perhaps you've been abused physically, sexually, psychologically, and the abuse has left you feeling dirty, unworthy, unlovable. And so you haven't got these major sins that you've done, but whenever you do anything wrong, it just reinforces to you, you're a lost cause. No one could take you. No one can accept you, love you, forgive you. And so any failure, any sin, and you feel that God's out of reach. Whichever way, however way you feel about your sins, hear these words of comfort. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Brothers and sisters, if we sincerely trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and we stumble into sin, Christ Jesus speaks to the Father in our defence. He tells the Father of his death on our behalf, that our sins already dealt with, forgiveness already won. And so despite our sin, we remain Secure as ever, as the people of God, in the presence of God. Now we should also notice that John says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. God's permanent forgiveness through Christ doesn't mean we go on a sinning spree. Uh, I'm hoping that that's uh, deadly obvious. Uh, From what we've read in Numbers, you, you can't come to that conclusion that sin's okay, A deliberate sinning can reap awful rewards. Just ask Korah. 
God's holiness and his forgiveness mean that we hold God in the highest regard. We respect and revere him. It's like having a, a, a really, really good parent or a really, really good teacher, someone that you admire, someone that you respect. Now, they're in charge, sure, but you don't do what they say just because they're in charge. You do what they say because it would break your heart to do the wrong thing by them. The thought of hurting these people, doing the wrong thing by them, it makes you feel sick. You don't want to, and if you ever did, you'd be so sorry. God's holiness and his forgiveness, if we understand them rightly, well, then we don't want to wrong God. And if we ever did, we'd be so sorry. Because our God is generous in the extreme. Complete forgiveness because Jesus died in our place, embraced into the heavenly throne room of God and we're there to stay despite our sin because of Jesus Christ. God doesn't withdraw from us because of Jesus Christ. I write this to you so you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and that for those of us that trust in him, you have forgiven us, you have ushered us into your very presence and we're there to stay because of Jesus. Father, thank you that he speaks to you on our behalf. Father, thank you. And so we pray that we would hold you in the highest regard and that we would not even want to come near to sinning against you. And Father, we thank you that when we do stumble, that Christ is there speaking on our behalf because of his death that's already taken place in, uh, for us. Father, thank you that he intercedes and he is our priest and he mediates And thank you that he does it perfectly. Amen.